0: And you'll see in your worship folder there, <clears throat> excuse me, the scripture passage for the morning. Um, it's kind of long, I apologize for that, I'm trying to pare down uh, a lot of material uh, into one page. Uh, but I'm going to be reading this this morning. Uh, it's from First Kings 16, a verse from 17, and then some portions of chapter 18. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, ran over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria at that time. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God And that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, "Go up, eat and drink, for there is a the sound of the rushing of rain, and in a little while the heavens grew black and with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning. My name is Jonathan Winfrey, I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, Uh, and we're in the middle of a series that's spanning the entire Old Testament. We started around the beginning of the school year, uh, and we're going to be finishing uh, right before Advent, so the end of November, basically. Uh, And our theme has been this, a theme we've seen over and over again. God has a mission, and he has a people for that mission. And currently we're in a period of Israel's history that's known as the divided monarchy, Divided because the 12 tribes of Israel are split. You've got 10 up in the north, called the kingdom of Israel, with the capital city of Samaria, and you've got two in the south, called the kingdom of Judah, with the capital city of Jerusalem. And as Drew uh, warned us about last week, uh, the division of the people is due to their envying and harassing one another. It's due to their uh, self-preservation, their self-concern, their relationships end up being broken, and their egos rule, so that power is coveted by everyone, and it creates disaster, and that's what we've seen, and as you read on, much of the book of First and Second Kings is the author alternating between what's going on in one half of the divided kingdom, and what's going on in the other half, and in chapter 16, which I just read to you, we learn that Omri, well, I didn't read this part, actually, Omri Buys the hill that would become the city of Samaria. And what follows is a chronicling of the house of Omri. Okay, so all of Omri's descendants. And Omri is described as doing more evil than all who were before him. But unfortunately, the evil only gets worse from there. And in the middle of 1st and 2nd Kings, there's a section where we're introduced to two prophets Elijah and Elisha. And this week we're going to look at an episode from the Ministry of Elijah, and next week we'll look at a ministry, or excuse me, an episode rather from the ministry of Elisha. Now the context is that first paragraph that I read to you, and the reason I give you that context is because it gives you an idea of the environment in which Elijah appears. OK? Uh, in fact, he does just that. he sort of appears out of nowhere. Um, why now? Why to Ahab? There's lots of different theories, but I think, suffice it to say, the king of God's people is not acting like the model of King David. He's not acting like a king. And what happens when the leader or the king doesn't seek after the Lord, but goes after other gods? What happens when his people do the same thing? And in order to answer those questions, this prophet arrives on the scene. Uh, I want to quote a Bible commentator named Robert or excuse me, Ronald Wallace, he says this, and I I was just very encouraged by this, wanted to share it with you. To see Elijah appear so suddenly reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth, for we may be sure that God, in unexpected places, has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. God has always his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men for his service from nowhere. Therefore, the situation is never hopeless. Whenever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height, listen to this, for at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure that his own cause will never fail. I hope that encourages you. There there are a number of examples of great movements of evil, especially today. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, now's not the time to go over them or talk about them. But rest assured, even in the midst of those, the Lord's cause will never fail. And the fact that Elijah just appears on the scene, God has been preparing him the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Now, uh, the opening verses tell us that Ahab has instituted Baal worship as the new state religion of Israel. And you'll notice in your worship folder uh, an outline. And there in the introduction, uh, I mentioned that to you. It is now the state-sponsored religion of Israel. They have moved from syncretism to full-blown pagan worship. That's the spiritual climate of Ahab's administration. And so I want to examine three things. uh, And they're the three points in your outline there. And I, I want to view them like this. What does the drought teach us about God's discipline? What does the contest teach us about God's power? And what does the fire and rain teach us about God's provision? Okay, so those three things, the drought, the contest, the fire, and the rain. Uh, several people have mentioned to me, uh, when, when I mentioned to them that this was the story we were going to be doing this week or that this was a story in our series, oh, I love that story. Um, and I think part of it is just because it's so amazing. The power of God in it and through it is, uh, is pretty, pretty profound. So first, the drought. Okay. How is the promised drought a sign of God's discipline and judgment on Israel? Well, look at the first words out of Elijah's mouth to the king. Okay. Chapter 17, verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In the Bible, a prophet's function was to serve as a mouthpiece of God, but here, Elijah is declaring a drought, a physical one, but a spiritual one too. When God's word is hidden or ignored, it's a sign that judgment is taking place. God is disciplining, he's disciplining his people. He's testing them. Where will they go? Who or what will they seek to bring them life? Where will they go to try to make sense out of life? And the Bible teaches us that God's word governs all things, and because of that, his word displays his power to the nations. His word provides food and shelter and clothing for all his creatures. That's what we read in the call to worship from those two psalms. When his word is held back, or when it's restrained or hidden, life, or even reality, we might say, unravels. It breaks down. And I mentioned this earlier, but God's intention for Israel was that the king would live and lead according to his word. And blessing and flourishing would then follow. Crops would grow. Milk and honey would flow. All of the beautiful pictures that you read throughout the Old Testament of things that just sort of make your heart sing or you close your eyes and go, wow, that would be amazing. That's describing things when the king is ruling and reigning according to the word of God. When life is lived according to our words and our rules, we live like Ahab. Let me show you what I mean. If you fast forward something like three years later to chapter 18, verse 1, Elijah heads to see Ahab and tell him that the Lord is going to send rain. There are three years with no rain or dew. Verse 2 of chapter 18, the famine was severe in Samaria. So where do you find Ahab? We didn't read this because it's impossible to read all of uh, the material here. But where do you find Ahab when the famine is severe? Searching out any source of water left for his mules and his livestock. There's a famine of the word of God, but that's not his priority. His priority is, how is the famine affecting my animals? How can I find my mules and my livestock, my horses, some water? It bothers the king that his mules and horses won't be cut off from water sources. And so he sends Obadiah, the head of his household, out. He says, you go this way, I'll go this way, and we'll try to find whatever vestige of water is left. It bothers him more than the fact that his wife has cut off the prophets of the Lord, which we also read, or we we didn't read, but you read in the, the first few verses of chapter 18. Jezebel has attempted to silence the word of the Lord from the land. But you don't see Ahab seeking after the Lord. You see him seeking after his own comfort, his own security, his own stability. Reality for him is defined by how healthy the economy is, how devoted the people are to his agenda, keeping his approval ratings high, keeping the peace. See, other than maybe Jezebel, his wife, the king isn't accountable to anyone. He's not submitted to anyone. He's not placed himself under the authority of anyone. And so he has to figure out life on his own. And when you and I do that, when we seek to live apart from being under the words of God, we live under our own words, according to our own words, or someone else's, for that matter. We end up fashioning reality in our own image, according to our own wants and desires. In fact, you notice this, the more vehemently you're committed to doing life by your own set of rules, the more intensely you'll respond when someone dares question How you do life. Look at Ahab when he meets Elijah. He's been trying to find this guy and kill him, really, for the past few years. But he's been unsuccessful. Here's the prophet of God giving him the good news that the Lord is going to send rain. Now, how does he greet him? My Lord, Elijah, seeing you means God's on the move. What does Yahweh have to say to his servant, the king? Is that the way he greets him? No, he says, is it you, you troublemaker? I mean, he's threatened, he's upset, he's angry that Elijah's here. See, when we commit to doing life in our own strength, on our own, according to our own words, we're offended when someone would dare challenge us or call us to consider that there might be a better way or that God has a message for us or a word for us. Elijah responds fearlessly. It's great. He says to Ahab, in point of fact, king, you and your family are the troublemakers in Israel. You have abandoned the words of the Lord. The Lord has simply given you what you wanted, his absence. I mean, the king wanted God to go away. So Elijah says, the Lord says, fine, we'll go away. Because you're the leader of the nation, Ahab, The Lord holds you accountable for the direction of the nation. Now, um, as we like to say in popular culture, game on, right? So let's look at the contest. What does the contest teach us about God's power? How does Elijah confront the people? How does he confront us, okay? And I want to focus in on verse 21. Um, If you've read this story before, this verse probably stuck out to you in in some form or fashion because it, it really is kind of arresting when you read it. He confronts the people, he says, and confronts us too. Elijah came near and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, the implication, I want to bring this up because I, I feel like it's important. Uh, it's important for us to know. The implication of limping, because the Hebrew word also means tottering, Teeter-tottering, right? The the implication of limping is a back and forth. It's a, you're never quite settled, right? You're straddling the fence. It implies that a person who is limping never lives on purpose, at least with respect to this. They never live on purpose. They never live with intention. There's a half-heartedness and apathy that characterizes their life. But why? Why uh, was this true of Israel? The people certainly dreaded the Lord. They feared, they were scared of Yahweh, right? But they also dreaded uh, Ahab and Jezebel, who demanded Baal worship. Well, why was it so attractive, Baal worship? For one, uh, the queen was an avid follower of Baal and Asherah. So avid, in fact, she allowed their prophets to eat with her, right? And in the ancient Near East, eating with someone, particularly royalty, meant you were in. You were valuable to them. You mattered to them. And so the prophets of Baal and Asherah mattered so much to Jezebel that she would allow them to eat with her at her and Ahab's table. The power, uh, or excuse me, the people with the power can be very persuasive. This continues today. Dot, dot, dot. That's all we'll say about that. But the people with the power can be very persuasive. I like alliteration. Uh, Secondly, another reason why it's so attractive. Baal worship has been practiced by the Canaanites for centuries. And when Israel originally came into the land, they were instructed, destroy every evidence of pagan worship. And there's reason to believe that it was never completely eradicated. In other words, there was always something. It may have been small. It may have been, you had to go far and wide to find it. But something was always there. They never completely eradicated it. The temptation was always around. Lastly, though, Baal was so relevant. And I think this is probably the, the one that's most powerful. Listen, the system touched felt needs. It's why... It historically held so much sway throughout the land. This was a God, they believed, that could bring rain and fire. He gave grain, wine, oil. He could raise the dead. He could heal the sick. He could even grant additional children. One commentator puts it like this. (laughs) This is great. When Baal was in top form, the world was pregnant with life. Here was a faith that suitably scratched where folks existentially itched. I couldn't say it any better than that. Let me just plagiarize it, right? That was great. It's perfect for a society centered around farming, right? Everything you could want or need, Baal supposedly provided. Now, those of you who consider yourselves Christians, let me warn you lest you think that Elijah's question may not apply to you, right? How long? I'm not limping between two opinions, I serve the Lord. I'm a Christian. Think about how easy it is to live like a practical atheist. Go back through all the decisions you had to make this past week. What motivates you, for example, when you decide what to wear? Okay? Don't judge me as you're answering that question. You can see what motivates me. Nothing, really. (laughs) That's pretty much it. Uh, What motivates you and what you're going to say in an argument? Did you have an argument this past week? Who was it with? How did it turn out? How did it start? What was the motivation behind the things that you said in that argument? Students in an argument with your siblings. Unless you don't argue with your siblings. Maybe you don't. Can I get your parents' phone number? Because mine do. Did things go relatively well this past week? What was difficult about the week? Was there a conversation? Was there a work decision? Was there a parenting decision? There are lots of things we do and say and plan for throughout the week. Think about this. So many things that you think about, plan for, do, say, that God is not even a part of. God isn't even in the equation because we've leaned or we've tottered over to serving some sort of idol, right? Let me give you an example. If I'm serving the bail of people's opinions, then my time will be devoted to keeping everyone in my life happy. I'll rush around in a constant flurry of activity because I can't, I I can't let anyone down. Their demands, their needs, are like heroin. And I meant, as I was writing this uh, early in the week, I I thought, gosh, that seems kind of extreme. But I I wanted to be extreme in terms of just graphic. Because this is how powerful this stuff is in our lives. The demands and needs of people, if I'm serving other people in such a way that their opinions matter, it's like heroin. And as long as I'm getting a hit that they're satisfied, then I'll be satisfied. What's worse, though, is when we relate to God on the same assumption that the prophets of Baal did. Now listen, that is, the prophets of Baal, the people who worship Baal, related to him, and lived life on this assumption. I can only get God to begin to do things for me if I work up a flurry of passionate religious activity. And the problem is we exhaust ourselves so often in Christian activities, inflicting wounds on ourselves, all with the hope that God will notice. If I can fill my calendar or my family's calendar with enough Christianly stuff, then maybe God will be impressed and he'll bless me. Listen, that's Baalism. That's not Christianity. That's how the prophets of Baal thought. And living like that wears you down. Look at the story. They were there all day long, screaming, cutting themselves, dancing around, praying, yelling, hoping he would notice. Right? Incidentally, the scriptures tell us no one noticed, no voice answered, no one paid attention. As if the narrator's trying to say, no one, Baal doesn't exist. There is no Baal. He doesn't say he didn't answer. He says no one answered because he's not there. It's interesting even, the demands of the ancient Canaanite deities are so eerily similar to the demands of things like success and influence, reputation, a busy calendar, having flawless kids, A clean and tidy house, amen. Uh, But if keeping up the juggling act so that all those balls remain in the air is your goal, you will never rest. You'll never rest. You can't rest. That's the thing about idols. Their demands are never ending. And funny enough, they never deliver on the promises that they offer. And doing those things, that is, Uh, wanting to have kids that behave well, wanting to have a clean house, right, Uh, wanting to serve people, having things on your calendar, those things in and of themselves are not bad, right? But if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ Jesus by faith, then the gospel tells us God has noticed you. You don't need to earn his notice. He's noticed you eternally because of the person and work of Jesus Listen, Elijah confronts us about the same problem Jesus does in Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. One Bible scholar says this, Commitments have consequences. The existence of the real God is not a detached, but a demanding matter. Atheists actually may be smarter than we think. Maybe they smell the implications. The God of the Bible is not an idea you play with, but a king to whom you submit. Here is no tame God. He, we we might say, keeps slopping over into my life, claiming it, invading it, refusing to allow me to put him in his religious box. We may prefer a God we have domesticated. We show him to his deity litter and we keep him in his place, but that is not the real God. And the contest on Mount Carmel confronted the people with a choice. Who would they follow, the real God, the creator, or a false God of their own creation? And I I want to point out something to you. Did you notice the difference in verse 21 and verse 39? They're both there in your worship folder. In verse 21, Elijah asks them this question. Actually, it's not there. I apologize. I meant to include it. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. It's not printed for you there, but that's what the rest of that verse says. Their silence implicates them in their sin. But look at the end. Look at the end of the passage. This is there. Verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What's the difference? In one, they're silent, and by the end, they're confessing, as if to say, "Baal is not the Lord, the Lord is God." What did they see that causes their confession? Their confession is a statement of exclusivity, it's a statement of allegiance, and they say it twice, which was a way of showing emphasis. So what did they see? And that's what I want to finish with is God's provision, the fire and the rain. They saw God providing. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, for those of you who may be new to the Bible or or, uh, have have just kind of gotten into reading it or you're completely unfamiliar with it, in the Old Testament, any time the fire of God fell on the altar, it was something very significant. It indicated... To the people that God was authorizing, he was accepting, he was pleased with the sacrifice that was on the altar. And it was clearing the way for the people to approach him as if to say, There's no longer a barrier. I accept that. You may come toward me. Elijah is proving a point in the way he builds the altar. Now, don't miss this, okay? He arranges, I read it, he arranges the wood, he cuts up the pieces of the bull, and then he pours water all over the thing. He says, Pour water all over the thing again. He says, pour water all over the thing a third time. Do you get the idea? How do you typically put a fire out? With water, right? But this water, verse 38 says, is licked up by the fire of God. The Lord and the Lord alone had to do the work. So here's what we learn. See, you and I can never possibly do enough to earn God's favor or make him notice us. No matter how hard we try, we can't get to him. Okay, hear me. He has to come down to us on his terms. He moves toward us to make it possible for us to move toward him. And God's fire of acceptance of Elijah's offering on behalf of the sin of the people, that's what produces their confession. That's what they see and in turn They fall on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Seeing God's move toward them results in faith. What pleases Yahweh is not us shedding our blood like the prophets of Baal did. I didn't read it. But in the story, they actually start to cut themselves as was their custom. What pleases Yahweh, what pleases the Lord is our faith that the blood of a substitute will be acceptable to him. And that was the point of the Passover. Its goal was to point us to the true and better sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the final Passover lamb, on the altar of the cross, where he, rather than a bull, was the willing victim. Only the fire of God's wrath fell on him instead of us, just as in this story it falls on the bull rather than on the people. The people have offended God, you realize that. The people have sinned against God, but the fire of God's wrath falls on the bull, not on them. So, where do you find yourself this morning? Are you exhausted from maybe religious activity, moral activity, trying to be good, trying to measure up? Are you tired from the constant demands of the idols that so often capture our hearts, things like the opinions of others, or financial security, maybe, or simply self fulfillment? The truth is, those things will never provide the peace they promise. Because we weren't created to serve and worship them. And if you're not a Christian, then I want you to know the Bible teaches that peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ. When you come to believe that God does everything and you do nothing, then you'll know peace. As the old hymn writer says, lay your deadly doing down at Jesus' feet. And this altar is God's way of saying, hope is not lost. Right? The way back to me is through the atoning sacrifice that will satisfy my wrath for your sin. Listen, the goal of the Carmel Contest was to display God's power, but also to show God's provision. To prove his gracious love for his people. And again, if you're, if you're not a Christian, or you're struggling with whether you believe or not, the God of the Bible is the real God, but he's also the reconciling God. Because he's the reconciling God, he's the real God. Because he's the real God, he's the reconciling God. No other God of any other religion in the entire world can say that. The fire is both this overt proof and a subtle invitation. And so God is saying to you this morning, as we sang earlier, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. And that's good news. But God's provision doesn't end there. Allow me to quote uh, Ronald Wallace again. Israel, he says, and we learn again that this God who sends fire to convert our hearts will also send rain to refresh and feed our bodies. He wants Israel's faith so that he can flourish them. He wants our faith so he can flourish us. The, The people confess him as Lord in verse 39, but there's still a drought. The drought hasn't finished So let me connect this with our our mission as a church as I close. We long for hearts to be converted from self-reliance to faith. We want to see people stop serving, as the title of the sermon suggests, dead idols and start serving the living God. That's why we want to plant more congregations throughout our city and our county. But we also believe that once that happens, God is not done. He desires flourishing. The restoration of Israel wasn't complete without the rain. And so wherever we see a drought in our community, whether it's a lack of food, shelter, companionship, education, family, we, that is the people of God, move in to heal it. That's why the goal of Redeemer is not just a great church, but a great city, a great county. We long to see the fire of God convert, but we long to see his rain follow and flourish and renew so that his kingdom comes and his will is done here as it is in heaven. So let me pray for that uh, as we we conclude. Uh, Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do marvel at your mighty work of salvation, the fact that you are willing to lay yourself on the altar of the cross and absorb the wrath of God so that it was turned away from us so that we might come and approach God Thank you for producing the confession in us by faith that the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And I pray that you would help us to come to see all the ways in which we're serving dead idols. Idols that make demands on us that they never deliver. Idols that wear us out. And forgive us even for treating you the same way, thinking that we can conjure up a a flurry of religious activity and it will make you notice us. Forgive us, we repent, and help us by your Spirit to know the exclusivity of saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, and that in turn you send rain to flourish, not only us, our hearts, our lives, but even our entire community. Come and do that through us, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. As you've heard this morning, the only hope we have uh, is a sight of the fire of God falling on the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're dealing with fear, uh, if you are hungry, if you're looking for satisfaction, some of the things we just sang about it is only the promise of God going with you uh, and living with a sight of that sacrifice that will give you the strength you need, the perseverance you need, the courage you need to face whatever situation you're going out from this place to face. So receive the benediction as you go as a reminder of that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.